So I guess um, to avoid maximum rustling. <laughs> <laughs> maximum rustling, like cattle rustling. Cattle rustling. <laughs> We're going to be a uh, Gallimimus rustling. <laughs> Welcome to our um, pretty impromptu Jurassic Park podcast where we're going to do a, a bit of a rundown of one of our favorite movies from the early 90s or childhood to be specific about it. We have Kean here who is a, a zoologist. Um, so he has lots to offer on Jurassic Park and its uh, various characters and creatures. We have spared no expense. Absolutely no expense. We even have our own lazy technician uh, recording this for us over by uh, the bed, and we hope he doesn't run away with all our embryos. All our high-tech stuff. <laughs> high-tech stuff. Yeah, we got Dennis Nedry over there. Um, so I guess what we'll start off at, like, when did you um, first become aware of not just Jurassic Park, but dinosaurs? As it were, because like dinosaurs were huge when we were young, weren't they? They were, and they were huge like millions of years ago as well. <laughs> <laughs> Many tons, I believe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. As a, as a kid, I loved dinosaurs. I was crazy about them, and I feel like my my interest in dinosaurs was like exploded in 1993 when a little movie called Jurassic Park came out, and oh. I, my parents took me to see it uh, here in Cork at the, the old. Um, what was that cinema called? The Cineplex. The Cineplex, which I believe has been demolished finally. Yes, it's, it's immortalized in a local song called uh, Casual Sex at the Cineplex. I did not know that. Who uh, sings that song? The, the Frankenwalters. Oh, the Frankenwalkers. Yeah. Uh, I distinctly remember it because it's the only time I've ever seen lines going around the block for any movie in my whole life. Do you know, that's why they call a blockbuster a blockbuster. I did not know that. Because they literally bust the blocks. And you have queues going around the block. And back back to the topic. So tell me more about your um, your, your first trip to see uh, Jurassic Park. Was this your first time, like, seeing a dinosaur, as it were? In in any kind of decent movie, yeah. I was eight years old, and it blew my mind. And me and my brother came home, and we made our own little shitty Jurassic Park <laughs> in the garden by like drawing dinosaurs on cardboard and cutting them out, and like. Putting them around the curtain. <laughs> it's true. That sounds absolutely. You didn't have any trip to Smith's afterwards with the bison. <laughs> I think we had many trips to Smith's because I distinctly remember multiple Christmases being full of Jurassic Park paraphernalia for years to come afterwards. Uh, that, that's an important important point, actually, Ken. Uh, maybe we should talk a bit about. Um, you were talking about paraphernalia, Jurassic Park paraphernalia at Christmas. Like, I guess one of the biggest things about the movie is the merchandise that's on display in the movie. 
Yeah. So we we what we did uh, today was we we sat down and watched the movie, and um, made a bunch of notes about things that happened and thoughts we had in in chronological order in the order that they happen in the movie. And that was kind of one of the first things I noticed was was uh, in the opening scene. But I think before we we talk about the opening scene, Chris, can you tell us about some of your memories? My memories, God. I, I asked you to be on this, in fact, because I don't know anyone else in the whole world <laughs> who knows as much about Jurassic Park or who cares as much about it as you. Well, look, I, I don't know where I f- first came into contact with dinosaurs as a, like a childhood obsession or anything, but I do remember you know, remember those magazines that came out. It was dinosaurs. Oh, I yeah. have those. I have them all next door in my room. And, I, uh, we could take a look later if yeah. you like. We also did. You have the glow in the dark Tyrannosaurus Rex. You bet skeleton. your ass, I did. Yeah, I had that. I never finished the the damn thing, but uh, yeah, it's probably still lying around in my attic somewhere. I think those were the first. Did those come after Jurassic Park? I can't really remember because the movie itself is really responsible for, you know, a huge upsurge in interest in in paleontology and dinosaurs. And, and that sort of thing. So I can't remember if those magazines came before I saw the movie or after, but I do certainly remember going to see the movie with my parents and be, being a little bit scared. <laughs> I mean, I was, what, 93, was 93, it? 93, yeah. Jeez, I was no less than six years old, I would say. Um, for some reason, I remember seeing a standee of another Michael Crichton movie in the Cineplex. In 1993 at the same time? Maybe it wasn't. I remember seeing Congo. I love Congo. Congo, I believe, was 1995. Oh, we should do that on yeah, another we, podcast. Yeah, we, we will. That's one of my... like. Bruce Campbell is in that for like a minute at the beginning. It's one of my favorite movies. <laughs> um, so, yeah. I, I, I don't have any vivid memories, really, of that time. But I, I do remember going, going to see the movie, I guess, with my parents. Maybe twice, three times. And, and talking about it with friends, that sort of stuff. Having... All the uh, the bizarre action figures and did you have the raptor where you squeeze his legs and you went? I still I still have that raptor. I theme. think that's next door. I think that's in my room as well. I think my raptor's legs are a bit worn out <laughs> at this stage. <laughs> but uh, yeah, his 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 mouth would open as you squeezed his legs, and uh, he looked like he was taking a dump or something like that. <laughs> And uh, but my, my guy's mouth no longer works, and uh, for some reason, yeah, maybe you you would have experience with this as well. But if you had a, a an action figure like that, or a, a, f- a figure of a dinosaur or whatever, do you ever um, draw on them? <laughs> Ch- change the colors. I I don't have a lot of experience with that. No. Oh, okay. Did you change the colors of your Velociraptors? Yeah, I, I tried to make them darker or scarier. P- yeah, p- yeah, exactly. But put, they needed it. I I put like red marker on his teeth to make him bloodier, <laughs> as if he had been eating, you know, Bob Peck or, or whoever. Mr. <laughs> um, Cheeky and Bob Peck, I guess. Uh, <laughs> I guess after our brief trip down memory lane, yeah, 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 we yeah. should get started on, the, on our comments for the movie proper. So the, the movie proper begins with that classic thud. Ah, <laughs> yeah. oh, done. Oh. and and the the kind of choral accompaniment. Yeah, to this day, that 
that knows that, that that makes me get ready for something. It's, it sends a bit of a shiver up my spine. It's a, it's a great score. I've always liked it. Oh, fantastic. Uh, one of my favorite, there's lots of different versions of it on YouTube. There's like kids trying to play it on piccolos and stuff and they're terrible. But there's <laughs> my favorite version of the Jurassic Park theme is being done by a guy playing a, what's called a Weissenborn guitar. Weissenborn or Weissenborn, I think it's a German word. Uh, so look that up. Uh, it's fantastic. It makes the hairs on the back of your neck stick up. Mm-mm. Fact. Nice. Uh, who did this the score by the way? John Williams? No, it's John Williams. Yeah, John Williams. Right. Yeah, John right. Williams works with Spielberg a lot, and he's kind of bombastic and overblown. But uh, man, that Jurassic Park theme gets me every time. Oh, you betcha, you betcha. I have the score uh, in a book somewhere at home. Uh, like a, <laughs> I don't even. You don't even play uh, piano. <laughs> yeah, I can't even read music, and I have the the book somewhere I had home but our, our opening scene involves um, Robert Muldoon the yeah. uh, the gamekeeper as it were of Jurassic Park I like him I wish the character was in it more and we yeah. were talking about his accents and where he's supposed to be from and I mean he's a game he's a gamekeeper I think in the book some of the information that we were like coming up with trying to explain things in the movie as we watched it this time was based on stuff that we remember from the book um, by Michael Crichton, which came out in 89 or 90, I think. You know, it's set in 89, so a few years before the movie. Mm-hmm. And I, I seem to recall that Muldoon's character is from somewhere in Africa. So, like, in the movie, he's got this sort of South African accent, and I think they mention in the book that he might be from, like, Kenya or Zimbabwe, or he's got one of those, like, white people from Africa kind of accents, mm. like, uh, like Leonardo DiCaprio has in Blood Diamond. That's right. When he tells that guy that he's from Rhodesia, mate. Yeah, he's like, uh, he's like, I guess he's not really your your classic, uh, so big, you freaking... big game hunter kind of guy, <laughs> but he, he's like a, a retired version of that who's gotten some kind of work. Uh, yeah. At the local theme park, and he still dresses like like an African hand, and he's got an awesome hat. And, and shorts. And short and and socks pulled up nice and high. Yeah. <laughs> just, just in case. <laughs> so our, our opening scene involves him transferring. Well, we don't really know what it is at at that time, but uh, similarly, it is a Velociraptor that he's he's transferring from somewhere uh, with the help of his team, and uh, things take a turn for the worse <laughs> for the uh, quote unquote spoilers gatekeeper there. <laughs> <laughs> who uh, gets knocked off the uh, the cage, which <laughs> looks a, looks a little bit phony to me. <laughs> Is that because it's a prop, Chris? I, <laughs> Can you tell us any facts about the prop? I was told <laughs> John Hammond spared no expense <laughs> with his cages, and this cage looks like a piece of cardboard. <laughs> if the Velociraptor <laughs> was a bad guy in wrestling, this is the way that they'd be building him up. You know, where would he be on the card? He'd be on top of the card, wouldn't he? <laughs> like if if the Dilophosaurus was like a mid character, I I think the Velociraptor would be like <laughs> he would be like the Rock, right? He would be up there. With, yeah, I, I would I would say he's one of the main players. He's the big yeah. money draw. The Triceratops would be like the Miz. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Maybe Al Snow. Oh dear. <laughs> so anyway, one thing I noticed uh, was that while while this is happening, the other workers are standing around and they're wearing their JP hats. Um, 
with the Jurassic Park logo on it, and I just I, I was reminded how cool the logo is and how within the the universe of the movie, like the Jurassic Park Resort is extremely well branded. Like all of the all of the signage and the images associated with it are like really well done from a graphic design point of view. It's cool. Like if that was a real place. All of their branding is like spot on, and in fact, the the people who made the movie used all the same imagery to sell the movie too, which is why all, all the logos and stuff are really great. Yeah, I I totally go here. And that design like extends to like all the vehicles and buildings. Yeah, basically, the gatekeeper gets uh, sucked inside the cage. Robert Muldoon tries to save said gatekeeper. He says something like "fuck hepak" or something like that, and then he finishes up with the immortal. Shoota! <laughs> Great line. Shoota! And uh, before we know it, we we know it. We're uh, we're in the Dominican Republic. Wait, but but the, the the cage thing. Tell us about that. Someone bought that prop. Right? Is, that, is that right? Yeah, it was sold like in the last couple of years. Some like private guy wanted that prop, oh, that cage man. that you felt was made of cardboard. Someone wanted it so badly that he paid like some exorbitant exorbitant amount for it. So, yeah, we, we cut to the Dominican Republic then, and I, I think that's from the book, too. Um, Crichton uses that same location, and the reason he did so is because the Dominican Republic is well-known for... Uh, it's a place where people genuinely do dig up um, amber, you know, from trees, which is like fossilized tree sap, mm -hmm. and it's possible that you can get mosquitoes from that. Uh, however, my understanding is that the, the kind of amber reserves that they have in the Dominican Republic in real life are not old enough to be containing dinosaur DNA. They don't go back to the Triassic or the Jurassic or the Cretaceous period. No. But, you know, it it functions within the story to get to get things moving. I guess so. I, I can't remember the name of the guy uh, who Gennaro uh, visits. Uh, David Gennaro, I think his name is. His, That's uh, the lawyer character, right? Yeah, he's a lawyer for uh, John Hammond and uh, he's kind of trying to look the park over, or he's, he's trying to get it basically cleared for insurance purposes, uh, as we might say today. And um, and as they probably said back in 1993. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> um, there's, there's one paleontologist that they're looking to get, and that's, that's Alan Grant. Um, because they think that this other guy, uh, Ian Malcolm, who we'll, we'll tell you a little bit about later, is he's too trendy, basically. He's very trendy. And the insurance companies don't like... R Rostagno is his name, Rostagno. <laughs> he, he's the guy in the amber mine with the, with the mustache. Will you please explain this book you're using to... So to oh. where you're getting your cast information from. <laughs> okay, so I have this book. It's called <laughs> The Making of Jurassic Park. It's not quite a children's book, but it's, it's not <laughs> quite for grown-ups either. And That's it, good, because there are no grown-ups yeah. present. Tonight. And it's, uh, it's, it's split into, I guess, uh, two parts. One is just a kind of general pre-production, production, and post-production rundown. And the last part here is it's got these kind of yellow paper pages as opposed to glossy pages, and they go through uh, the storyboards of Jurassic Park, and they have some... In glorious the... black and yellow. <laughs> glorious, yeah, we'll have to post some pictures of that. And there's uh, there's a cast, uh, or the credits at the back there as and well. And that's how we know that this guy's, this bit character, this, this yeah. extremely minor character's name was... That's it. I, when I was growing up as a kid, I knew every name in every Jurassic Park movie, 
And it's only tonight I saw, oh, his name's Rostagno. I actually knew all their names too because of the, the action figures. Oh. And I was confused because some of them look nothing like the characters in the movie. Like, and I remember I had action figures before I saw the movie. Yeah. And and uh, Wayne Knight's character in particular looks his action figure looks nothing <laughs> like he does in the movie. And I don't know why. I wonder if it was made before they had even cast the role. We're gonna have to find that out actually. Because I, I think in a lot of cases, you know, big, big, big budget productions like this that have all their merchandise deals done way in advance. Like a lot of those decisions do get made before the movie is finished being made. Mm-hmm. So Rastagno, the uh, Amber Mine chief <laughs> of operations, we'll call him. This uh, Dominican he, Republic guy. Yeah, he, I, like I don't know why Gennaro has traveled all the way to the Dominican Republic for a 30 second conversation with Rastagno, and Rastagno basically tells him, You won't get Alan Grant because he's like me. He's a digger. He's a digger. <laughs> And just, why would that stop anyone from going to see dinosaurs? No. <laughs> it wouldn't stop me, I'll tell you that. No. So then we cut to the, the badlands of Montana. Montana. They're not good lands, they're badlands. Have you been to Montana? I, I would like to. I, would li- I never have, I'd like to though. What's happening at the badlands in Montana, Kian? What's going on? Well, we're introduced to our main characters, uh, Dr. Alan Grant, who's played by the always awesome Sam Neill. Mm-hmm. And I like Sam Neill for many reasons. He was in Event Horizon, which is one of my favorite movies ever. Mm-hmm. And he was in a miniseries version of Merlin, which aired on TV3 when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> and in the last year living in Minnesota, I lived with somebody who loved that miniseries uh, <laughs> as a kid and made me watch it again. And I didn't really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, I remember that show. Oh, God. <laughs> and, uh, of course, we have... She's not quite his significant other. No, we had various debates watching this about the exact nature of their relationship. It's not. I feel like it's not made super clear. Mm-hmm. It's, it's uh, Laura Dern, by the way, playing uh, Dr. Ali Sattler there. She's a paleobotanist. Botanist. Paleobotanist. She's an expert in old-ass plants. That's it. Which is confirmed in the movie, which at least one point she picks a leaf and says, like, oh, this is from the Cretaceous period. <laughs> Don't forget about that West Indian. Oh, the West Indian yeah. lilac. I forgot about the yeah, West Indian yeah. lilac. So, in, yeah, we, we debated about the, the nature of their relationship. In the book, they're not together, right? Mm-hmm. They're pretty clear about that. Crichton is pretty clear about that. In the movie, they sometimes talk about kids yeah. in a way that could be interpreted like they're together, and Grant is definitely possessive about her like they're close and he kind of likes her and he gets annoyed when ian malcolm is kind of flirting with her and stuff but he never does anything that like shows that he actually has any cause to full-on get angry with him so Mm -hmm. i'm not convinced that they're supposed to be together i think they're just close and he probably fancies her yeah and i know there's probably going to be People listening to this being like, oh, well, of course they're boyfriend and girlfriend, but like if you look at it and look at all the evidence, then it's not quite clear, really, is it? There is that one point later on when Malcolm asks him pretty ambiguously if they're together, and he's like, yeah, you know, but he, he said it in such a defensive, like, don't cockblock me kind of way that I'm not convinced that we're supposed to take, like, that it's what's the truth. Mm-hmm. But that—that's an. I think it's open to interpretation. So uh, basically, in Montana, they're they're uh, excavating. Uh, is that the correct term? Uh, uh, Velociraptor uh, skeleton, I guess. Which, uh, which actually, I, I think I'm I'm almost certain 
are never found in the U.S. There, all the all the Velociraptor skeletons in real life were found in like Mongolia and places like that's, that. That's that's correct. Were you about to say that? Did I? No, no. I was about <laughs> to confirm your suspicion there. Apart from the uh, this Utah raptor, uh-huh. uh, which um, I think Spielberg wanted the raptors in this movie to be. Bigger uh, than yeah, like real life. Eight foot tall or ten foot tall or something, and they said, "Ah, oh, no, that doesn't, don't, you know, there is no raptors that size." And apparently, while they were filming the movie, they found the Utah raptor, which I guess they found in Utah. I can't be certain, which was I'm pretty like, sure it was, yeah, eight or ten. Was that thing? Yeah, there's an interesting story, which is that in the book, Michael Crichton refers to the animals as velociraptors, uh, and the animal he calls a velociraptor, we now call. Deinonychus, which was about you know six or seven feet tall, and 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 at the time that was classified as a kind of Velociraptor, whereas now that's all changed, and the animals that we would call Velociraptor were about the size of a turkey. <laughs> oh, yeah, for real. So, like in real life, Velociraptors were not very big, but Deinonychus was about the size that the raptors are in this movie, and they're pretty similar animals. And then, like you said, to top it all off, when they were making the film. Uh, people discovered a relative that was really, really big. Wow. So there were various kinds of, of these these animals of different sizes. That's that's cool. Yeah, true story. <laughs> My mind is blown, King. Well, you better put your mind back together again so you can tell us about the kid. Of course, well, before that, something else that got blown was they, they fired this uh, <laughs> <laughs> radar, radar, I guess, into the ground. It's supposed to be this new technology. Um, to, and they found the skeleton under the ground or something. I don't know how it works. I don't know. I if remember it's in a the real book, thing. he says that they fire like some kind of metal slug into the ground. And then the, the vibrations, they're, allowed, they're able to trace the vibrations, and then the computer is able to draw a picture of what's under the ground. Oh, okay. And then Grant is all like, in a few more years, you won't even have to dig. <laughs> I'm becoming a fossil myself. Yeah, that's a bit of an undertone throughout the entire movie, actually, about certain things getting uh, wiped off the map. Um, so they, they basically bring up this image of um, the the radar raptor on the screen. <laughs> the raptor, <laughs> the raptor, <laughs> radical raptor, <laughs> radical radar raptor, and uh, Alan Grant, uh, Samuel, goes on a big rant about how awesome and badass and scary yeah, yeah. the velociraptor was to that kid yeah this kid comes out of nowhere and we don't really know why the kid's <laughs> there so Brand, Grant has this um, velociraptor claw <laughs> that he keeps on him just for traumatizing <laughs> teenagers <laughs> yeah and he starts um, telling the kid in, in no uncertain terms how <laughs> a raptor would stalk the kid and uh, basically disembowel him uh, is it a him or a her? I think it's, a, it's a boy. It's a boy, okay. And uh, kind of finishes with Grant uh, tearing the the boy's stomach. Well, like pretending to tear the <laughs> tear the boy's stomach with the the claw. I later found apparently there's some like mystery debunking show. Yes, who, about about whether or not raptors really could do things like that with their yeah, claws, right? Yeah, and it turned out that you know the claw couldn't. Yeah, I've heard that too. skin or something, but... Yeah. I... I it works in, in the context of the movie, given what was known at the time. You know, the raptors are a very effective villain in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and they're foreshadowed very nicely by a few scenes, including the one where he scares the kid. Mm-hmm. And they're built up, like, for quite a long time before they actually come on the scene in the movie. 
And uh, while also while Grant is giving this talk, there's these kind of bird noises in the background, which oh, yeah. kind of hawk-eared Chris noticed the the, the <laughs> sound. It's actually a red-tailed hawk, I think the sound is, and I know this because um, a lot of movies have scenes where you see like an eagle in the desert, and then you know, there'll always be that sound. <laughs> and it's always a red-tailed hawk, which is not an eagle. An eagle doesn't sound like that at all. But eagles make noises that in real life aren't very impressive. So the, the sound people on movies always fully in the sound of a red-tailed hawk. <laughs> and, uh... It's quiet. In this, it's almost subliminal. It's almost like yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, because a raptor is a bird of prey too, right? Yeah, they're making a, a connection between raptors and birds, and there's a lot of kind of uh, bird stuff happening while they're talking about the raptors and that sort of thing. And uh, speaking of birds of prey, down from the sky comes none other than the InGen helicopter containing... If I recall from the book, InGen is the name of the company, and it, it's short for... Is it international genetics or something like that? Uh, something like that. Could very well be. They don't explain it in the movie, but it's, oh. I think it's international genetics. Okay. And uh, so basically the, the helicopter is coming down. Yeah. And then Grant goes into his trailer and somehow <laughs> Richard Attenborough is there before him, even though the helicopter is not or just barely landed, but somehow he's there. That's right, and he's popping open a bottle of champagne, I he think. Is. And he's played by, well, he's Richard Attenborough, he's David Attenborough's brother. Yeah. He died a couple of years ago. Oh. Yeah. Well, I believe so. That's. And bad. he's rocking this ridiculous, over the top Scottish accent. Yeah. For his first few scenes, which he then loses completely <laughs> halfway through the movie. Yeah, Alan and. Uh, Ellie returned to the trailer to find a, an elderly man popping some champagne who explains to him that, uh, to them, that he has a, an island off the coast of Costa Rica that is right up their alley, I believe. <laughs> Right up there, Ali. Speaking of uh, of an island off the coast of Costa Rica, when I was younger, Keen, <laughs> I like this story. To my eternal shame, <laughs> I was adamant, absolutely adamant, that uh, is it Isla or Isla? Isla Nublar. Isla, Isla Nublar, which means and later, Cloud Island. Is that right? I guess I don't so. Speak Spanish. And uh, later, uh, Isla Sorna. That's the island from The Lost World, right? Yeah. Um, I was adamant that that those existed somewhere off the coast of Costa Rica. And I scoured and <laughs> searched every map I could find, every atlas going. And I, I searched for these islands. And, and you I, used the, um, like some of the details given, right? Because they tell them that it's either in the book or the movie, you find out that it's like a hundred and something. Yeah miles in some direction from Costa Rica. So you could figure out roughly where it's supposed to be, right? I had my compass out. <laughs> and I couldn't you find... You were drawing circles in the map, right? Exactly. <laughs> I couldn't find these things. And I, I, I could see Hawaii out there. Which is where the island shots are actually filmed in real life, right? Yeah, yeah, correct. Anyway, so... Uh, oh, we should mention the Richard Attenborough's character is called John Hammond, because we'll be talking about him later. And uh, so they agree to go to the island, and they jump on each other, and they jump up and down, and everybody's happy. <laughs> Cut to... <laughs> Cut to... We're in San Jose. Oh, I forgot about the San... Oh, yeah, this is an important... This, this scene has history for us. <laughs> this does. Would you like to tell it or... I shall tell the tale, Graham. Uh, I, I probably first understood the depth of your... 
obsession with this movie when uh, I was living in Surrey once upon a time in England and you came to visit and you had I don't think I had the Barbasol then oh you just had regular I, I had shaving cream okay. I had the hat and I had uh, yes. glasses and did you have a Hawaiian shirt or am I I had something like that so you had all the makings of imitating this scene so in this scene Wayne Knight uh, who's playing a character called Dennis Nedry uh, is is in supposedly San Jose it's probably filmed somewhere in California and he's meeting he's on some kind of shady undercover mission and he's meeting another guy and the other guy his name is Dogson he shows up and they Dogson <laughs> we got Dogson here is it Dogson I thought it yeah. was Dodson what does it say in the book it, well here it's D-O-D-G-S-O-N Dodgson Dodgson and he's more of a character in the book I remember that he gets more of a role and I think he was in The Lost World as well yeah, in the book yeah sneaking suspicion I feel like he's mentioned who least. does he work for some rival company. They are named in the book, but they're not yeah. named in the movie. No, oh, okay. don't think so. He just says your corporation or your company. Oh, so okay. the whole shindig is that Dogson works for some rival company and uh, Nedry is going to like sell out Jurassic Park for this guy's company and get him embryos. And he says, uh, your company will catch up on 10 years of this genetic research mm. after he steals the secrets, right? But he's going to keep the secrets, which are embryos, we find out, in this fake shaving foam thing. It's called a, a cryo can. A cryo cryo can. Thanks, Chris. <laughs> cryo can. But the the name on the outside of the can is is Barbasol. And when I was a kid, I thought that was a made up brand because I'd never heard of it. And that's something that happens a lot in American movies where like I wouldn't recognize the brands of things. So like obviously if it was Coca Cola or something, I'm gonna go, yeah, Coke obviously paid to be in this movie, but. I really didn't appreciate the level to which American movies have product placement, like, so much, all the time. I, I thought in my naivety that most companies didn't want to be mentioned by name in movies, so that whenever you saw a brand you didn't recognize it was probably made up. But that's not the case. M- most, you know, most movies made on big budgets have a hell of a lot of uh, product placement. I just... I didn't always recognize those brands then. And I was shocked when I, I did live in the U.S. for a while and I first found a can of Parmesan. I was like, wow, it's real. And nobody understood why I thought this was such a big deal. <laughs> so, yeah, in Surrey, um, you and I acted out this scene uh, with, with a can of shaving foam and a hat and a, a Hawaiian shirt. And uh, immediately afterwards, there was a Wayne Knight popped over and said, see, no one cares. No one cares. <laughs> Which is what he says when Dachshund freaks out because he keeps using his name. Yeah, yeah. And Wayne Knight is really over the top in this scene. Like, he's, he's like, laughing like someone on coke. Yeah. Like, and it's really inappropriate. And I don't understand why he chose to act it out that way. And then he, he like, he kind of gets serious then really quickly as well. Yeah, I, I was very alarmed by him putting the, the shaving foam on, <laughs> on the person's cake. I was just... <laughs> I was concerned for a long time about who would be eating that cake. Because someone might think it was cream. Whipped cream. Yeah, yeah, ex- exactly. Well, that, that's it comes out of the can just like whipped cream. Uh, onto our uh, helicopter, oh, the helicopter scene. scene. Finally, yeah. we are on our way. And we are now introduced to some other characters. So so Alan Grant and Dr. Sattler and David, Richard Attenborough, who's John Hammond, they're all in the helicopter. But also in the helicopter is the lawyer, Gennaro, yeah. and a new character who is Dr. Ian Malcolm, who's played by the wonderfully named <laughs> Jeff Goldblum. Oh. <laughs> Do the laugh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, he's a very strange actor. He's got a lot of very strange mannerisms, and 
just the way he talks is really odd to me. Yeah, uh, we're not even going to try and uh, impersonate him because it's, it's so such an kind of niche he doesn't thing. stutter as such but he, he yeah. repeats words a lot he does do that creepy laugh in this scene which is just <laughs> it's like he's yeah. chewing, chewing gum yeah back. and he in the book he is kind of like the voice of the author Michael Crichton because he voices all of the the, the suspicion and the kind of the anti-science stuff that mm-hmm. is in the novel and he's the one criticizing what uh, John Hammond has done and uh, so they're having a kind of a chat about chaos theory, which is all the rage, uh, I guess, uh, at that time. When and Malcolm and Crichton in the book, and some of this has, has kind of seeped into the script, uses chaos theory as a way to say that, you know, complicated systems can't be controlled. Therefore, something like Jurassic Park is bound to fail. Mm-hmm. The helicopter that they're all in, they're flying into this absolutely gorgeous uh, island, which is, of course... Uh, one of the islands of Hawaii. Is it Maui or Ka- Kauai? I'm not going to try and say any of those words. <laughs> Me neither. Okay. Well, I just did. <laughs> Great. Um, so the, the helicopter's encountering a bit of turbulence, and we see a little bit of character development <laughs> for Alan Grant when he goes back to basics. Yeah. Uh, everyone else can can tie their their belts. Their seatbelt, yeah. Their seatbelts, okay. But Alan Grant has a bit of trouble, so he decides to tie it in the knot. And it's already been established that he doesn't like computers. That's it. That's so it. he's a bit of a Luddite. So obviously a seatbelt is, you know. So the helicopter lands at the uh, the platform. And um, I will say this. That there is a, a shot there where the, as they're landing in the helicopter, the jeeps are parked at the helipad. But as soon as they get down, the jeeps are still reversing into the, the helipad. <laughs> now, Jurassic Park is has a litany of goofs and just kind of little small mistakes like that. But I I kind of love things like that in movies. I think yeah. it shows the workmanship. Um, That's a great shot. Like as the helicopter comes down in front of the the waterfall. Yeah, and that's the, really cool. And the yeah. jeeps are there. Yeah, it's great. Awesome, and that and the music swells. The, the John Williams score swells, and then Richard Attenborough gets out of helicopter, and he's like this old man who's got a stick, but he's always moving really fast. He's like Fraser's dad, you know. He's like, <laughs> he moves really fast, even though he's got a limp, and he's so excited to be showing everyone his park. He's like a kid with a new toy, you know. He's like your neighbor trying to show show you his new Mazda or whatever. <laughs> a new Mazda. We're off to the races here. We end up in a, a very big field <laughs> after a short drive. <laughs> a big field. I don't know how else to describe it. It's my field. I guess it's like a, a, yeah, it's just a big field really next to um, a lake. And uh, here is where we get our first full-on glimpse of a dinosaur. And what's interesting here is like we're, Okay, so the the people in the film are actually seeing a live dinosaur for the first time ever, but we're sort of living vicariously through them, and yeah, we're we're kind of seeing the first d- d- dinosaur as well. But also, back in 1993, this was the first time people were seeing animals like this that they hadn't seen ever before. Yeah, I remember the impact of that shot as well. Uh, as being a kid and nobody had seen anything like this before at the time mm-hmm. uh, I struggle to think of any movie before since that has shown dinosaurs to the effect 
that this movie had, and add to that the fact that it was a compl- like a pretty new technology. CGI in movies had been around for a while, and there'd been some earlier examples, but very few of them had used it quite the way this had done. It's it's a, a daylight shot, you know, and you can see the whole creature. There's no trickery. They're not trying to cover it up in any way. It looks fantastic, and it's it stands out even today, and it still looks good. I mean, you can see it's CGI, but there's been a lot of movies made since that don't stand where the CGI doesn't stand up. And mm-hmm. something that the, the people behind this movie really had, there, there was a lot of artistry. You know, you really get the impression that the effects were done by people who cared about what they were doing. You know, there's there's life in these creatures. They and, and throughout the movie, the dinosaurs are never used as like movie monsters. They're never vil- they're never villains. They're not demonized. They just they're like living, breathing creatures. Some of them are dangerous, but the danger in general comes from the fact that humans have been irresponsible in creating them or using them or or something like that. And right from the first time you see the the Brachiosaurus, um, the the sense of awe and wonder is like more than almost any other movie I can think of. They use a kind of a fairly benevolent dinosaur to, to start off the shot and uh, that is of course the Spielberg inter- interpretation of yes. the book compared to the uh, the actual book itself which is a whole lot darker and uh, Spielberg is of course just wanting to get that point across that. Yeah and I, a lot of the this notion I took from a website I like that's called uh, and you call yourself a scientist. It's a really good website I recommend you check it out. They do really good movie reviews but they have an excellent review uh, with really good analysis of Jurassic Park and one of the ideas I took from it was how the dinosaurs are approached differently in the book and in the movie because in the book Crichton has this kind of fear of science and scientific progress and it's it's very much a Frankenstein story. It's about like man messing with things that he was not meant to know and and in particular through the character of John Hammond in, in the book he's a very sinister character He's a money-grubbing capitalist. He's a showman who lies and fakes things in the past. And he's only creating the dinosaurs so he can make shit ton of money. Uh, and, you know, everyone dies and gets endangered because he's been careless. Whereas in the movie, Spielberg just can't roll with that. He pays lip service to it occasionally, but by and large, he's totally on board with John Hammond because he's like, wow, dinosaurs are cool, and I want to see them. And, you know, even though now and then he tries to criticize Hammond for being careless and people getting killed, at the end of the day, you know, he he gives Hammond a free pass because we're we're frequently expected to side with Hammond and to empathize with him in this movie. It's really clear, even right at the end, after he supposedly has learned his lesson. And in the book, spoilers, he's a nasty character who gets his comeuppance and gets killed by dinosaurs and hasn't learned anything. Whereas in the movie, it's like you're supposed to feel sorry for him because he had this great dream for the children of the world to see dinosaurs. And it didn't work out. And he's not really punished in any way for, like, getting everybody killed. Yeah, he's just this sweet old man, really. Yeah, he is. So, I mean, I I kind of see both sides of it. Uh, It does mean that the movie is not as dark. But then I also, I'm kind of on board with Spielberg in, in terms of, like, dinosaurs are awesome. And I like the fact that they're just these creatures that aren't demonized. Yeah. Would you forgive an old man if he opened up a theme park full of dinosaurs and killed a load of people? I think I would. I think I would, too. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on, we're, we're uh, on to the compound, the, uh, the, the visitor center. The visitor center. I had a toy visitor center. Oh, that was the thing I wanted the most. 
and I never got it. It had like big sections of the walls that broke apart when the dinosaurs invaded. <laughs> I remember that. I- ironically, in the movie, there is no wall breaking in the final scene where there should be. We'll right? get to that. We'll get to the uh, ninja. <laughs> the ninja T Rex. <laughs> the guests are brought up and into um, basically the start of the Jurassic Park tour, which is this kind of um, theater uh, that seems kind of spin around in a circle and it shows cross sections of the uh, the visitor center and the the laboratories oh yeah and that sort of stuff and they meet mr dna yeah mr dna the is cartoon this character kind of explains how the dinosaurs were created he's this kind of southern voice dinosaur <laughs> yeah dinosaur dna and it's <laughs> an awful southern accent. I've never been next or near the southern states, so I do apologize. So their first instance of chaos, chaos theory, theory, perhaps yeah. uh, the visitors as they're going around, uh, they're they're very inquisitive about everything they're seeing, and they see a, a laboratory with um, dinosaur eggs in it, and uh, they break out of their. Um, the, yeah. the theme park ride. Yeah, as it were, they have these kind of bars that come down in front of them to keep them in their seats, and they decide that they don't want to be there anymore. And so the five five guests, is it? I can't remember, but... Yeah, it's five. five. Uh, they decide to uh, break out and uh, have a look at the laboratory. Um, and they meet Henry Wu. Henry Wu. A minor Wu. character who I liked a lot because he had more of a role in the book and I was kind of pleasantly surprised to see him be in Jurassic World years later. Mm-hmm. And same actor? Played by B.D. Wong. B.D. Wong. Well, he doesn't do much in Jurassic Park, but I like him anyway. Mm-hmm. He seemed like a nice guy. When I was a kid, I thought he seemed like a nice guy. That's right. Um, so we, we see guys with kind of these power gloves. <laughs> you know, do you remember the power glove from oh, The Wizard? Is that what the movie was called? Uh, With the kid who so. wins at Nintendo games. And then he, it's, he like faces up against this kid who's so badass at video games. <laughs> he doesn't even use a controller. He uses the power glove. And he, he says he loves it because it's so bad. Yeah. So yeah. these guys are like... <laughs> In virtual reality from like 1993, <laughs> and it looks like something out of the Lawnmower Man. And I think they're supposed to be putting the the DNA sequences together in cyberspace or something. <laughs> when I was younger, I had a friend called Max, and he told me that his sister worked in this laboratory, <laughs> and she got paid a, a million pounds per second. And I was very envious of. Was she wearing the power glove? <laughs> She gets to wear the power glove. I, I don't know. <laughs> Here we see also uh, Hammond's Scottish accent is, is yeah, beginning disintegrating by the second at this point. <laughs> beginning to disintegrate, correct? And uh, we're on to probably one of like for me as a kid growing up, maybe one of the scarier instances of the movie. Basically, Alan Grant finds out that they've. Bread, bread raptors. They all end up out at the raptor pen, looking into the uh, the enclosure there, where it seems to be feeding time, and uh, they're feeding a steer. Now I didn't really know what a steer was, but it, it's, I've been informed it's a male cow of, of some description, and they're feeding that cow to the raptors. So uh, this caused us to wonder, like, how the raptors were eventually going to be shown to the public. 
Exactly, because you can't... There's no way, from what we see in the movie, there's no way for anyone to really see the raptors. I'm guessing that, like, it's early stages for the park and they haven't quite worked that out yet and eventually they'll have some kind of enclosure where people can see. But it's also in the scene where we meet our old friend... Muldoon. Robert Muldoon. I like him a lot because he's, like, again, one of the only ones who really realises how dangerous the raptors are and he has, like, this grudging respect for them. You know, he's... He's like some British general fighting against Rommel, you know. He's like, well, I don't like the bastard, but he's he's good at what he does, you know. He's the honourable enemy, and that's kind of his attitude towards the raptors <laughs> right up until the end. And I'd like to have seen more of this guy. <laughs> Quick cut. We're into a bit of a strange location. Yeah, they're in this room. They're eating dinner in a small but dark room where, like, projectors are surrounding them uh, for no reason other than yeah. so that Spielberg can do his trademark, like, blue light yeah. coming from behind someone's shoulder when they say something dramatic kind of scene. So there's basically a lot of interesting talk that comes out of the mouth of one Ian Malcolm in this scene that they're at in this strange corporate dining club setting. He, he basically has a problem with what they're doing in the park. And everyone seems to have a problem with what John Hammond is doing in his park, uh, apart from the uh, blood-sucking lawyer, uh, Gennaro, there. The lunch finishes up and we're off uh, on the tour. Unfortunately, with every Spielberg movie comes the kids. It's worth saying that they are taken from the novel as well. True, true, true. They didn't invent it. No, no, and so the uh, this, the tour kind of kicks off. Another bit of uh, development here with Alan Grant, who isn't too fond of kids, <laughs> as we know from the, the second scene of, of the movie there, a uh, third scene, rather. Yeah, basically he's trying to duck Lex and Tim. Tim. I, I don't know their last names. I don't know if they have last names. I guess they're Hammond, are they? I don't know. Played by Ariana Richards and uh, Joseph Maslow. Good name there. Yeah, I didn't even look at my... Oh, you didn't even need the book for that? No, no, no. They're another two funny uh, action figures, actually. Why do they not look like the... I don't think I had either of them. I also remember that all the figures came with, like, weapons that they didn't have in the movie. <laughs> like, <laughs> Wayne Knight's character, who didn't look anything like him, came with this, like, backpack that you could squeeze and it would squirt water out of <laughs> some kind of... Yeah. <laughs> Gone. Watch. Which he probably would have liked to have had him in, in the movie when he was coming up against the Dilophosaurus. Yeah. Wash all that gunk off his face. <laughs> <laughs> in the scene, Tim is actually talking to Alan Grant about uh, how the dinosaurs died on Earth, and he mentions a few books by, I think it's Diane ba- Backer. Diane Baker? Uh, and, uh, there's somebody called Backer and somebody called Horner. Jack Horner. And yeah. I believe that those are characters that Grant is actually based on mm-hmm. in re- in the book, at least, because they were people who were writing papers at the time, the late 80s and the early 90s, that were saying that, you know, maybe dinosaurs were so, had some aspects of warm-blooded animals, or maybe they, you know, I mean, the, the whole debate about dinosaurs and birds was kicking off again. And these people were kind of involved in that. So I think that he's deliberately supposed to be reminiscent of some of those people. And I know this in particular because Horner had a had a beard and in the book. <laughs> so does Alan Grant. Yeah. And doesn't it, in the movie. In the storyboards here, uh, I have for Jurassic Park, all the storyboards for Alan Grant have him with a, a big beard. And I, I think that's why, because he's based partly on Jack Horner. The tour kicks off. 
we have we're, we've been introduced to another character here because we see a an inside shot of the control room that's controlling the tour and we see a, a guy uh who is very familiar to us these days but probably wasn't so familiar to us back in the early 90s certainly not to me as a six-year-old <laughs> you weren't too into your tarantino when you were six oh no it was uh, samuel l jackson and um Sam Samuel L. Jackson. Uh, I guess this was probably his first kind of big, uh, big role. Well, kind R- of like a skeleton crew, aren't they? Yeah, they're running this massive theme park on probably one of the most important days, apart from the actual opening day of the park, is where they're they're actually like. They're having real people in there for the first time as yeah. visitors who have the power to like shut it down yeah. if they're not impressed. And they're running this, like, experimental, you know, place full of creatures that they don't really understand. And there seems to be, like, four people running the show. (laughs) And the part that annoys me the most is how, like, the guy who seems to be the only person running the computers and the, the power systems is, like, Dennis Nedry, who's, like, this super disgruntled guy who's clearly angry that he's not getting paid enough. And surprise, surprise, he goes renegade and like sells it up. True, true. We're we're told by John Hammond that he has spared no expense in getting one Richard Kiley uh, to to narrate the the CD-ROM, the exciting CD-ROM technology that's in the cars. That's correct, and he narrates the entire tour. For those who don't know, Richard Kiley. I don't uh, know. Oh, okay. He's a famous uh, stage and film actor from the States, who, I think he passed away in 1999, but he was one of these kind of old-school actors in the 50s and 60s. They got him to... Actually, originally in the book, he narrated the tour. Then in the the movie, he narrated tour. And then when they opened up um, the roller coaster ride in wherever it was, Orlando Studios, he narrated that... Uh, Oh, roller coaster in real life. as well. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, so uh, our first stop on the tour is the Dilophosaurus paddock pen. Spielberg here ramps up the tension by continuing to deprive us of any actual dinosaur sightings. So we're kind of back to the, the control room, and there's a bit of a fight between Dennis Nedry and uh, John Hammond, to which. Oh yeah, when, in which you find out that Nedry, as well as being disgruntled and like having all the power uh, over the IT parts of the park, is also uh, has financial problems. Basically, uh, they they try and go look at the Tyrannosaurus, and there's no Tyrannosaurus there. So the the tour goes on. They they try and lure the Tyrannosaurus, I, I believe, with like a goat. More kind of that more... would get me out. I'd be like, hey, goat. Yeah, we're we're going to talk about more Tyrannosaurus stuff after the oh, Triceratops so. stuff, because there's a a lot there, Stay including tuned. why, including the massive debate about the geography of the Tyrannosaurus <laughs> attack scene, and and the possibility as whether <laughs> there is some sort of underground goat enclosure. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's it's unbelievable that there is an underground goat enclosure because think about it, if like every day tourists go by. And they are every day they have to feed the Tyrannosaurus, if that is the standard way they do it, then they've got to have a goat every day. 
And like, there must be an underground enclosure mm-hmm. where the goats are to bring them up to the surface, like we see. That's it. More of that later, but first, the chaos theory intensifies. <laughs> yeah. The, the tour moves on basically away from the Tyrannosaurus uh, enclosure because there's no Tyrannosaurus there. Oh, and we now have the the vet character. Oh yeah, Harding. His name is Ed Harding, and he's again he's more he's used more in the book. Yeah, so all the the Didn't guests, here. the two kids, Ian, Malcolm, and um, the two doctors. The two doctors they leave the cars again. Again, are they? Is this a, an example of classic horror movie idiocy, or is it just? Oh, look, there's a triceratops. Let's go look. I think it's more chaos theory. (laughs) I see. (laughs) Beg your pardon. And uh, they go down and they see the the triceratops, which is actually sick. Talk about a fantastic animatronic uh, puppet. It is unbelievable. And uh, There's a nice moment, actually, where Grant leans on the side of it and says that it was his favorite one when he was a kid. And it's just a nice moment because he's someone who just really loves dinosaurs and he's having this incredible experience and this is not a movie that's like goes into a lot of depth with its characters but you know what moments there are some of them are really nice mm-hmm. and that that to me that's very believable as someone who grew up loving dinosaurs and you know i mean i got into science because of jurassic park you know and and that because that blew my mind with with being interested in dinosaurs like you know i i, I would understand where he's coming from in a scene like that so i really like it Cool, cool. And same, same with me. I got into trying to do movies because of Jurassic Park too. And I used to be out in my garden just um, acting out the movie countless, countless times. Anyway, we're on from a really nice moment there with the Triceratops to one big pile of shit. <laughs> uh, yeah, Ellie Sattler is trying to figure out why the Triceratops is sick and she's uh, sticking her hand into some poop where she finds out that there is some uh, West Indian lilac berries and that the Triceratops have been eating them, which sort of proves her point at the corporate lunch earlier in the day, that there are plants out there that are going to like basically defend themselves. I guess we're, we're just on the cusp of, of taking a break here because there, there's a big storm rolling in over... Isla Nublar. There's a there's a storm coming, and this is really the beginning of the roller coaster. So strap yourselves in. Strap yourselves in, and join us next week, I guess, or next uh, next time. Next time. Let's not commit ourselves. <laughs> oh. Where we will close off the second half of Jurassic Park, and in true Spielberg fashion, we're going to prevent you from being in contact with any dinosaurs until next week. Okay. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Have a good week. Whatever. <laughs>